The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. To V or not to V, that is the question, the full economic fallout regarding whether or not we are headed for a V-shaped recovery. And aftermath in Tulsa, a tale of two narratives, depending on which side you're on, tells you how you interpreted that rally on Saturday night. I'll give you the latest from my conversations from inside of the president's re-election campaign. And we will check in with Bloomberg's White House reporter, Jordan Fabian. Greg Brower also joins us. He's a partner at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber and Shrek. He is the co-chair of the Government Investigations and White Collar Defense Practice. We're going to talk all things about the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney after the prosecutor quits following a standoff with the attorney general. 2020 Watch with Brian Darling, Republican insider, and Dr. Lara Brown, director of the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University, and of course the author of the new book, Amateur Hour, Presidential Character, and the Question of Leadership. Did you see that rally Saturday night? Did you see the rally? What did you think? Did you think that it was a glass half empty or a glass half full stadium, of course? Uh, joining us on the line to tell us what everyone is saying. It was the talk of the town, really. And we're going to go beyond how many people were or were not in the stands. Uh, is Jordan Fabian. He is the Bloomberg uh, White House reporter. Jordan, what did you think of the rally? Well, Kevin, you know, the, the uh, intended effect I think it was supposed to have didn't really deliver. Uh, didn't deliver that big punch of momentum the president wanted to get his campaign back on track here. And uh, that's why I think we're see, sensing some real frustration on behalf of the, the president's allies about how that event went on Saturday and asking questions about the direction of the campaign moving forward. So, OK, so what are you hearing from your sources? Because, I, I, I mean, you can look at this so many different ways, and I want to dive into specifically what President Trump outlined in terms of how he's going to contrast himself with Joe Biden and also the foreshadowing of the economic pitch that he's going to make to Macomb County, uh, which is one of the battleground counties, because that's really what this is coming down to in terms of independent voters. But why was he frustrated? Was he frustrated because only 6,200 people showed up to the rally? I got to be honest, Joe Biden hasn't had a 6,000 person rally ever in, in, in this cycle. Yeah, Kevin, I think the, the issue that, that people I talk to are seeing is that, uh, you know, Brad Parscale, the president's campaign manager, is being accused of over-promising and under-delivering. You know, they were touting that number of one million signups for that rally, 
And it really seems hard to believe there were that many, uh, given how many people showed up both in the arena and outside where the president had to cancel those uh, those overflow remarks. And then there was also the content of the president's address. I mean, he spoke for an hour and 45 minutes, but it was a meandering address. It was hard to really identify what the central theme of it was. He was talking about internet commentary about how he drinks water and, and his walking down the ramp at, at West Point. And so I, I know these Trump rally speeches tend to uh, you know, meander at times, but this one I think was alarmingly so for some people. And, and I think Republicans would really want to see some kind of message from the president about why he deserves a second term articulated directly to the voters. I mean, I, I hear you. I think having been to more Trump rallies than I can count, I mean that's the whole spiel that he does. It's a it, it's a show. It, it, you know those types of 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 uh, rallies. I think and in, in they're part comedy act, part policy pitch, part preview for the presidential debate. Six thousand two hundred. That's the lowball estimate in terms of the people that went. Optically, you know you've got half the stadium that isn't there. I, I get it. I get it. However, again, Joe Biden. How many people is he putting in? And I, I, I just think it's a it's a it's a study in contrast. Fox News, by the way, says that the viewership uh, during the rally was seven point seven million. Fox News had seven point seven million viewers there on the rally. I spoke with the source on the campaign today uh, this morning and I said, look, you know, the coverage not so good. And what they uh, this source told me was point blank. If you went into Tulsa outside of the stadium, the, the businesses on the ground boarded up the wooden boards, boarded up the shops in downtown Tulsa. It's, you know, folks here in Washington, D.C., we've had the boards on the on the shops, the glass shops forever. There's a lot of rumors that that it was going to turn testy in Tulsa. And they're saying that discouraged people. All right. So what's next on the president's agenda? Where is he going? He's going to Wisconsin and Arizona. Yeah, Kevin, I'll be with him on the plane uh, to Arizona tomorrow. He's going to go down to the border wall. Uh, that should maybe provide, provide some comfort to the president. Yeah, that's the project he's talked about for a very long time. He's, uh, they're commemorating the 200th mile of the wall being built, although a lot of that is rebuilding old wall. Uh, nonetheless, he'll probably uh, celebrate that accomplishment. And he's also going to Phoenix, where he's going to speak to some young supporters uh, from tur- the group Turning Point USA, you know, those groups are typically high-energy uh, events. Uh, I've attended some of those in Florida, so maybe that'll be the crowd that the president really wants. So in terms of a policy preview, the president did outline at one portion in the in the speech about really the pitch that he's going to make to the swing voters who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. And he said the economy is going to be making such a comeback. The 401ks are going to be doing so good that you're not going to want to take an, a chance and vote for a Democrat in the White House. That is really the contours in terms of the economic pitch that he's going to outline uh, in the in the five months leading up to November. And then in a contrast, he also offered a preview of how he's going to debate Joe Biden. I was struck uh, by him saying, uh, look, Joe Biden, you've criticized me on race relations. You've had decades to do this. Where were you? And, you know, I was looking back at some of the other debates. Jordan, I mean, they've Joe Biden has been so silent and there's a frustration amongst the president's reelection campaign that they can't seem to get or to bait Biden back into public. Are you noticing that, too? Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and there was some wrangling today, Kevin, about uh, the number of debates and the, the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign trading accusations about you know who's being unfair here. But it's an interesting dynamic because typically in a past you know past election, 
you you have the challenger clamoring for debates and the incumbent maybe wanting to protect himself and and limit the number of debates uh, to protect the advantage of the incumbency. But right now, the president is trailing Joe Biden by big margins, both nationally and in swing states. So he wants to get out there and challenge him face to face. And he believes he's his best path to victory, perhaps, is getting on national television mano a mano with Joe Biden and, and matching with. Uh, whether that actually happens beyond the three debates that traditionally occur uh, remains to be seen. But, it, but it's, it's just an interesting flip from what we see uh, typically in, in a year when an incumbent president is running for re-election. It really is. It really is quite remarkable. All right, Jordan Fabian, thanks for checking in with us to break down what was a very, very interesting week in t- or weekend in Tulsa and to preview the upcoming week as the president gets ready to hit the road uh, in Arizona and Wisconsin. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Did you see this at the Bloomberg Invest Global Virtual event today, Steve Schwartzman, he is the chief executive officer of Blackstone Group, Inc., said that the economy is likely to benefit from a V-type recovery in the next few months. He said at this Bloomberg Invest Global virtual event, quote, you will see a big V in terms of the economy going up for the next few months because it's been closed. And this, of course, is now the expectation of the market. More next. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Did you miss this on Friday night? Jeffrey S. Berman, the Chief Federal Prosecutor in New York, resigned resigned after a remarkable, folks, I mean, it really was a standoff with Attorney General William Barr and the contradictory comments from President Trump. I'm reading from my colleagues Eric Larson, Joe Schneider, and Christian Berthelsen's reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal. Berman, remember, Berman was the one who said that he would fight to keep his position to protect investigations being run by his office in Manhattan. This after he was accused of resigning. He said he didn't resign, and then he ultimately ended up having to resign. He's going to be replaced by Deputy U.S. Attorney Audrey Strauss. But it's just like this bevy of—it's it's dizzying, all right? And, and I have it—you know, I'm dizzy. I'm dizzy from all of it, so we got to bring in Greg Brower. Greg is a partner at Brownstein High at Farber Shrek, and he's the co-chair of the Government Investigations and White Collar Defense Practice. A little bit about Greg. He's— uh, the former, uh, or he's the federal agency inspector general. He's a senior FBI official, uh, and he's the deputy general counsel at the FBI. Greg, you've got a heck of a resume. The feds are coming on the on the Bloomberg Sound On show. Well, Kevin, it's great to be with you, and perhaps most importantly for this conversation, I served as the U.S. attorney in my home state of Nevada back during the George W. Bush administration. So it's you know we're thrilled to have you on. Okay, so what's going on here? Because I'm hearing a lot of spin from the left and from the right. What's going on? Just make sense of it for us, please. I wish I could, Kevin. This is a hard one to make sense of. I think the the bottom line, though, is that whatever the White House and the Attorney General were up to, it backfired, and uh, it simply isn't going to work. We're, We're left with the situation of the 
the former U.S. attorney, interim U.S. attorney Jeff Berman is out, but he's been replaced by the senior career official in the office, Ms. Strauss, as you mentioned, which is, is not uh, certainly something that the White House or the AG would want, given the fact that she is not a political appointee, presumably has no relationship with the president or the AG. She's just a uh, the real deal, if you will, an assistant U.S. attorney who is going to simply follow the law uh, and the facts wherever they lead her and not pull any punches. And and it would appear that the presumptive replacement for Mr. Berman, current SEC chairman Clayton, is also not likely to uh, actually be confirmed because Senator Graham, who chairs the Senate Judiciary Committee, has said that he's not going to push through any nominee that the senators from New York don't agree with. And I can't believe that uh, Senator Schumer or Senator Gillibrand will ever agree with Clayton as a nominee. And so it's really been another sort of embarrassing effort uh, on the part of the White House and DOJ. Uh, and at least uh, in this case, they're not even uh, going to realize their goal, which is to replace Mr. Berman by a prosecutor of their choice. Okay, so there's so much to unpack it here, especially you know for folks who are who have been keeping tabs on a host of other different stories while also navigating through the pandemic and everything else that's been going on, especially here in Washington D.C. I want to start with Jay Clayton. He is, of course, the chairman of the uh, SEC, and that's who Trump wanted. The president wanted. So, what's the backstory? Why? Why? Why did that flop? And what would cause? Uh, Lindsey Graham, who was a staunch ally of the president on on most other issues, what would cause him to go against president on this issue? Well, I, I think what's going on here is um, a, a simple case of uh, the White House's and, and the AG's failure to kind of uh, bring Lindsey Graham in on the joke, right? Uh, they apparently didn't bother to tell them of this plan. And so he didn't know anything about it, didn't know what he was supposed to say or do. And so he just uh, kind of uh, in a fit of, of candor and a tradition said, well, I'm, I'm not going to uh, push through a nominee without following the blue slip tradition, which, as uh, your listeners may know, uh, is the tradition that allows uh, typically for judicial nominees, allows the home state senators to, in effect, withhold their approval, thus killing the nomination. And so he's now on the record as saying that he's not going to force a nomination through the committee without the approval of the two senators from New York. And so it's hard to believe that this nomination would go through, uh, mostly not, not just because of the blue slip uh, privilege that each of those senators enjoys, but because Mr. Clayton, for, for all of his uh, experience and expertise as a corporate lawyer, uh, is apparently someone who has never been a litigator, who has never uh, appeared in court on behalf of clients, is not a veteran of that office, has never served in DOJ. And so, uh, again, he may be a very fine corporate lawyer, but he doesn't fit the typical mold for the U.S. attorney position, particularly in this district. And so it just doesn't seem like the Senate will approve him. Greg Brower's on the line. He is a partner at Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, Shrek, and he is also, of course, the co-chair of the Government Investigations and White Collar Defense Practice uh, at that firm. I, I want to ask you about more congressional response, because over the weekend there was also reports of bipartisan 
legislation, bipartisan legislation that would make it more difficult for a president to do this. Can you tell us anything in terms of how Congress might act to prevent this type of situation that the president has done from happening again? Well, that's a tough one, Kevin, uh, because as, as much as the White House and DOJ created a situation here that is causing many on Capitol Hill to question their motives, the reality is that U.S. attorneys do serve at the pleasure of the president. And so the president constitutionally has the power to remove U.S. attorneys for any reason at any time. It's hard to imagine Congress changing that uh, because the Constitution essentially provides that power. So I don't know what Congress can really do here, uh, but what the administration can do going forward, obviously, is that if it wants to change out a U.S. attorney, the president simply needs to announce that that person uh, has been removed, and he can then submit a nominee to the Senate for a replacement. It's actually a very simple thing, and it's something that the president absolutely has the power to do. They just sort of botched it in this case. It really is remarkable. It really, truthfully, is absolutely remarkable. All right. I want to thank I want to thank you, Greg Brower. He is the partner at Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek, and he is the co-chair of the Government Investigations and White Collar Defense Practice for coming on to make sense of all of that. And remember, you can download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. Coming up, we check in with Brian Darling, Republican strategist. You don't want to miss that. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. So I went home to Delco this weekend. See, I see my dad. Happy Father's Day. My godson, Petey, turns four this week. The big four. It's going to be a whole hand soon. And uh, my sister's birthday. And, and, you know, we have all this cake. We have all this cake, all these M&Ms, sugar, you know. I love it. Can't eat enough whipped cream. You know, the kids love whipped cream. And we see a mouse. Let me tell you something, folks. I like to think my family's pretty tough. This little mouse, the size of like, not even the size of our hand, caused such an uproar running around the kitchen. You would have thought it was, I don't even know, but it was eating everything. I mean, you give a mouse a cookie. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. You know, I wanted to record that into the Bloomberg Sound On system. Brian Darling's on the line. He's a Republican strategist. Brian, did you ever have to catch a mouse? What do the kids say when they see a mice? A mouse? Mice? Mouse? When they see a mouse? When I lived in Boston, we had mice, and and we had bigger versions of mice, also known as rats. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how was your father's day? Did you have a good one? Very relaxing. I went to actually went away to the beach last week, so I came back very oh, relaxed. Which shore do you go to? 
I went to uh, Bethany Beach in Delaware. Fun. Okay, so people down here do Delaware. See, where I grew up, we did the Jersey Shore. We didn't have a house, but we would always – my mom loves Cape May. But uh, anyway, saltwater taffies, I miss them. Or saltwater taffies, I guess I should say. Okay, Brian, he's a friend of the program. He is former senior communications director to Senator Rand Paul and the founder of Liberty Government Affairs. I got to talk to you about the Bolton book because Bolton says that Senator Rand Paul prevented John Bolton from getting the Secretary of State gig. Huh. Did Rand Paul ever tell you that? Well, I'm very happy that that happened. I mean, <laughs> Rand Paul was very much opposed to John Bolton being Secretary of State or being at all in the Trump administration. And he was proven right. He saved us from a bigger disaster than we had. So, you know, you got to remember, John Bolton actually sent up a super PAC to take down Rand Paul when he ran for president. And John Bolton himself had visions of being president someday. I mean, he, he had talked about the possibility of running. So this is a guy who um, really, he didn't belong in the Trump administration. He shared zero of the views of President Donald Trump. So I, I just don't understand why Trump hired him in the first place. And I'm very happy to see him gone. Well, did you see Axios with uh, Mike Allen? What M Mike Allen was reporting today on Axios with um, Sarah Sanders, Sarah Huckabee Sanders reporting. Yeah, she, her book's coming out. Great stories. <laughs> so her book's yeah. coming out in the fall. Uh, and it's it's called Speaking for Myself by Sarah Sanders, and she released an excerpt uh, to Axios, and then she tweeted about it, which was Mick Mulvaney, the president's former chief of staff, the CFB, CFPB director. We had him on the program, I think, like a week and a half ago. Mick Mulvaney told off John Bolton when they were on an overseas trip. He said saying, and Mick Mulvaney doesn't really curse, and he said some words, according to Sarah Sanders, <laughs> that I can't repeat on the Bloomberg Sound on Radio show. But there was, it looks like John Bolton was a bit of a controversial figure inside of the White House, but a lot of national intrigue because the ratings with that fascinating, and Martha Raddatz, one of the best in the biz on ABC News, interviewed him. I think it was the first interview over the, uh, over the weekend last night it aired. And just the ratings for that were through the roof, Brian Darling. Yeah, no, the... In in Sarah Huckabee Sanders' book, I mean, she's. It was reported that she's going to discuss. It. He was very aloof, and he basically kept himself isolated from the rest of the the Trump team, which shows that he probably had plans to write this book a long time ago. I mean, obviously, the revelations are, um, you know, they're very interesting to read, and it's a lot of palace intrigue and you know a lot of controversial stuff that makes. Most Americans a little bit uncomfortable, but ultimately, if you're a Trump supporter like I am, you look at this and say, uh, I, I like the policies of President Trump, and I'm not going to get all wrapped up in, in a lot of these side issues and, you know, the way he talks to foreign leaders. I care more about tax cuts and getting good justices on the Supreme Court and reducing regulations and having better trade policies. You know, that, and that's what I want to talk about, because because the frustration amongst the sources that I've talked with uh, on the Trump campaign is that they can't seem to get Joe Biden out in public and that Biden is continuing to really just keep a low profile, which they say, which Biden world says, why would we go out? I mean, <laughs> I mean, everything is, you know, you've got Bolton with millions of viewers tuning into that. You've got the president and this latest news cycle. And then before that, the, the racial unrest. I mean, why is that a problem? I mean, are you, is this, how are you going to get Biden out there 
uh, on the campaign trail, or do you think eventually his time will come? Well, I think his time will come, but it is a smart strategy to basically, you know, lock Joe Biden in a basement somewhere and not let him out in the campaign trail because we're seeing Republican on Republican political violence right now, and that helps Joe Biden. And, you know, the polling, I, I, I don't know how much I believe all of the polling, but the polling does take the temperature of the American people right now. And it shows that Trump's not doing great. I mean, he's not having a good summer. Uh, things are not going in the right direction for him. He's not doing great in swing states. I mean, things can change very quickly, but it's smart to just keep him out, you know, away from cameras and away from the public. The problem is you can't avoid it forever. There are going to be debates. There are going to be opportunities for Joe Biden to make speeches at whatever we, you know, whatever happens at a convention, whatever that turns out to be. I mean, there'll be numerous opportunities for them to have it, have it out head to head and to give speeches. So there will be an opportunity to confront Joe Biden. It's just not going to happen now. Okay, so you, in, in terms of the down ballot races, you were quoted in the Epic Times, uh, and and you actually have a contrarian view to what the 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 word around this town is, which is that Democrats are poised to have some big gains in the House and in the Senate. And in fact, I was looking at the Teresa Greenfield; she's the Democratic challenger to Senator Joni Ernst, who's going to be on our show by the end of the week, uh, Republican from Iowa. And that poll in Iowa, a state that the president carried by like nine or six to nine percentage points in the in 2016, and she was able to carry significantly. The Des Moines Register has a poll that has Ernst trailing Greenfield by three percentage points, which is remarkable because Iowa traditionally has been such a Republican stronghold and hasn't voted for a Democrat since 2012 with former President Barack Obama. So, uh, Brian, I mean, but you're saying that because Trump's back on the ballot, you actually think that's going to help Republicans, unlike in the midterms when he wasn't on the ballot, uh, when Democrats were able to pick up seats. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. My analysis is that in one sense, Donald Trump is very much like Obama in the sense that when his name is on the ballot, the supporters come out and they really help the down ballot races. So if you're Democrats in the House, you've got 31 House Democrats sitting in seats that Trump carried. They There's an incentive for Nancy Pelosi to keep them not in session very much in the fall to get them back home to try and save a bunch of those seats. Whereas in the Senate, it might be a little bit different because you've got Republicans defending a bunch of seats that look like they're in swing states. So it's going to be interesting. But I presume right now we're looking at a situation where Republicans pick up some seats in the House no matter what happens at the top of the ticket. And uh, if things go south for Republicans, they lose the Senate and they lose the presidency. But still, the House is uh, – you still would have a situation where House seats Republicans would pick up a bunch of seats in the House. All right. Well, give us your lay of the land. I mean, I don't want to ask you to predict, but what is what is – Trump have to do to turn it around, or does he not have to do anything? Do you think this is just a misinterpretation by what we're seeing in the press? I mean, I think every race, we see a tightening up of polls as we get closer to Election Day. So I think this race will get a lot closer when people get more focused on the race. I mean, obviously, this is one of the years where there are even more things that are keeping people from focusing on what they're going to do in the fall. I mean, we've got massive, um, you know, protests throughout the nation. We've got a, a coronavirus that's, that's disrupting everybody's lives. The economy's in a horrible place. So people are going to really make their decisions probably 
very late, very late. And so the polling now I don't think is an indication of where people are going to be in the fall. But they do show a little bit of trouble and headwinds for President Trump. Um, and he's going to have to we're going to have to see some things turn his way for this to turn around. All right. Brian, appreciate you coming on. Brian Darling, everybody. Brian is a Republican strategist and the founder of Liberty Government Affairs. More next. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent with Bloomberg TV and Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And I listen to a lot of music all different types of music from sinatra to uh the chain smokers you know i just i love good music i love you too and i was struck when i was reading the wall street journal over the weekend did you see this peggy noonan she had a column on bob dylan and she it's an amazing column go check it out it was published over the weekend peggy noonan bob dylan a genius among us she writes quote there are two things you have to do if you have a if you have big ambitions and want to create something important that lasts the first is the daily work and trying to keep it at a height that satisfies you that's hard if you succeed the second is dealing with the effects of the work and managing a career that's tricky it involves making big real-time decisions about pathways and ways of being and you have to figure out if an opportunity is a true opening or an easy way out if a desire for security has the potential to become a betrayal of yourself and the thing God gave you your gift and mr. Dylan Bob Dylan seems to have handled all of this by following to an almost radical degree that dictates of his essential nature and talent and doing the work that he envisions it day to day my next guest has studied all of this not necessarily Bob Dylan maybe she has but has studied leadership in the and then the issue of presidential character is actually the subject of her new book amateur hour presidential character and the question of leadership her name is dr lara brown she is the director of the graduate school of political management at george washington university dr brown how are you welcome back to the show do you like bob wow i love bob dylan i will tell you that joker man is one of my favorite Ah, songs so good and in fact that song is really about sort of the trickster, which is some of what politics is about. So exactly. interestingly enough, the two go hand in hand. And uh, Bob Dylan was the first songwriter to win the Nobel Prize for Literature back in 2016. So the last time, Dr. Brown, you were on, we talked about President Trump. And I want to get your take on, on the Tulsa stuff for <laughs> speech from over the weekend. But I do want to offer a little bit of, of your thoughts on Dr. Fauci, because he has been making headlines. He's going to testify in the House of Representatives tomorrow. And according to the testimony that was just released earlier today, uh, he's saying that there is going to be a quote unquote tremendous burden come the fall because of the flu and the potential for COVID-19 to hit as a double whammy in the fall. When you look at Dr. Fauci, who has weighed in now on everything from health of the everyday American family to the prospects of an NFL season. How would you size up Dr. Fauci in this political climate? Well, I think he is doing everything he can to maintain his credibility and at the same time push this administration toward 
sort of reasonable and rational expectations. I think the difficulty for him is that you have a president and a Republican Party that is not much interested um, in public health concerns as much as they are economic concerns or even their political ones when you think about staging a, a national convention in August. And all of this is coming as the number of new cases around the globe has reached a record. If you look at Florida, for example, that new infections rose to another high in Texas. Governor Texas is everywhere today. Texas Governor Greg Abbott said that the contagion is accelerating at a quote unquote unacceptable rate. Uh, it, it has just skyrocketed, you know, ten, the, the enormously uh, in in Texas. And and Frank Luntz, Dr. Brown, who is a prominent Republican pollster, he actually tweeted out something today on the issue of the politicization of uh, many of the issues that you were just talking about, and that's on the issue of masks. He said they should be about as controversial as seatbelts. And even so, even as the political coverage in the Twitter Twitterverse uh, around the president's public appearances this week, there is that backdrop of whether or not there's going to be masks and how uh, various different things are going to be handled. So from the lens of President Trump, how would you size up uh, how that has communicated, not to the base, not to progressives, but to independent voters who are going to decide this upcoming presidential election? Well, I think the problem is for most Americans is that there's been a very mixed messages out of this White House and in this administration. There was this sense that first the coronavirus wasn't going to amount to anything, that it was originally going to just disappear. Then we had the coronavirus task force briefings, which were these daily briefings with their updates, and there was a sense of seriousness about it. And then when there was this fear that the economy may not recover from where we are, it became about, well, let's put that in the in the back and pretend as though these cases are not rising and hospitalizations are not there. And this is really a state problem now. So we've had a lot of mixed messages. And I think part of the frustration and why you see the president's poll numbers dropping is that Americans are tired of the uncertainty and they're tired of the sense of chaos that this administration stokes. It really is tired is the right word for it. I mean, it's not just a, a proverbial uh, way to, to talk in this sense. I mean, I think the polls do suggest amongst independents they're just exhausted from the from the from everything that has gone on uh, in the past three months in this country. I call it COVID brain. You know, I took my mom shopping <laughs> over the weekend, and we were going. You know, it was the first time we'd been out to like a shopping mall that just reopened in Philadelphia. And Dr. Brown, I got to tell you, I said, I don't even know how to act in a mall. You know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> everything is just slowly reopening. Dr. Lara Brown is on the line. She is the director of the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington University. She's also the author of the new book, Amateur Hour, Presidential Character, and the question of leadership. Let me ask you, is it a mistake for former Vice President Joe Biden to not be out there as publicly as many in the Democratic uh, strategic circles are a little bit worried about that he's not out there as much? No, I don't think so. Really? Look, when you are dealing with an incumbent reelection and you're looking at the poll numbers, which show that Americans are seeing this as a referendum, and the only question they're asking themselves 
is, does President Trump deserve four more years or not? The last thing you want to do is raise your profile and make this a choice election. Right now, Vice President Biden is running at about what a generic Democrat would run. And I would argue that he should stay there as long as he can. Wow. But do you think it's a risk? Because because when I was watching the Tulsa speech on Saturday night, Dr. Brown, I thought, okay, that's exactly what he's going to say to to the former vice president on a debate stage. And if you think back to the debates in the Democrat primary, Biden struggled in many of those debates. But I think we'll be in a different place by the time the debates roll around. I mean, the vice president has committed to doing three debates. um, So he is there with the Presidential Debate Commission. I would also say that this moment in time, this summer, is a traditional lull in the campaigns between the nomination phase and the national conventions. So it is true that most candidates right now are focusing on putting together a strong plan for the fall and raising money. And they are not necessarily barnstorming the country. Um, That is something that usually waits until we get closer to Labor Day. All right. And my final question, if you had to pick a song for the the, for Tulsa, what what Bob Dylan song would you pick? I'm putting you on the spot. Oh, that's horrible. Uh, You know, I don't know. Um, (laughs) I will just say this, that I think what we saw in Tulsa was something of kind of the air being let out of the balloon. Um, There was a lot of anticipation and expectation that had been built up from the Trump campaign and his advisors. And really, that balloon appeared to deflate as people were watching that Saturday night. Dr. Lara Brown, Director of Graduate School uh, uh, Political Management at George Washington University. Thanks so much. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.